2: Hi everyone, my name is Dan Lobby and welcome to a crossover edition of the Orange Brown Talk podcast, Wine and Gold Talk, and Cleveland Baseball Talk. Which coach or manager in Cleveland will win a championship first? You know, it's not a crazy question. Two of the three major sports teams in Cleveland, the Browns and Cavaliers, have already made all-in moves over the last year. The other team, the Guardians, they're led by perhaps their best manager in franchise history. So it's not crazy to talk about the Browns winning the Super Bowl because they declared when they traded for Deshaun Watson, they believe they're ready to win the Super Bowl. The same can be said about the Cavaliers, who declared they were ready to win and win big when they went all in to acquire Donovan Mitchell from the Jazz. Meanwhile, the Guardians, who no one thought had a chance to make the playoffs in 2022, got to game five against the Yankees in the ALDS and suddenly have an interesting young core with more prospects on the way sometime over the next, I don't know, 500 days, one of these teams could in fact play for a championship or not, which means one or more of these coaches or managers we're about to discuss might not be a coach here anymore. Well, okay, Tito's probably safe no matter what. But on this podcast, we're going to try to answer the question, which coach or manager in Cleveland will win championship first? We start by digging into each one. Chris Fedor talks to Ashley Bastockamy about J.B. Bickerstaff. Then Paul Hoynes joins Doug, Lay Maurice, and me for spring, from spring training to talk all things Tito Francona. And lastly, Mary Kay Cabot tells Doug and Ashley everything they need to know about Kevin Stefanski. The goal here is to reveal the strengths and weaknesses of each person in charge of the teams and the things either boosting them up or holding them back in their quest for a championship. The answer isn't just who is the best coach or manager it's also who has the best situation so doug ashley and i wrap up the pod by digging into the question and trying to come to a consensus on the correct answer so let's get started all right we now welcome on to the podcast chris fedor who covers the cavaliers for us at cleveland.com chris how are you
3: i'm good what's going on gang
2: Uh, Not too much. All right, Chris, let's get to it. Uh, J.B. Bickerstaff, uh, coach of the Cleveland Cavaliers. Let's dig into him a little bit. What is it that he does well uh, for, for this basketball team and as a head coach?
3: It's funny that you bring this up, Dan, because I've asked a lot of players this question for big pieces that I've worked on in the past about J.B. and ones that I have coming in the future. And the thing that they say is his communication style. He's open. He's honest. He's straightforward. He's transparent. He lets these guys know what he needs from them, what he wants from them. And he has a way of communicating in a way that gets them to buy in. And I think that's interesting, right? Because like so much of leadership to me is communicating in with people in a way that's going to make them want to follow you. And I don't think everybody has that, right? Um, He just has a unique style to get these guys to buy into the things that he wants them to do. And he is very, very, very big on culture and trying to um, keep it loose, lighthearted, but also business-like when it has to be. So to me, the biggest things that make him um, the successful coach that he has been for the Cavs, especially for this group of guys, a young group of guys that that is still learning a lot of stuff in the NBA. It's just instilling a culture, getting them to believe, and getting them to buy in.
0: Chris, I guess with my question with JB, it seems to me like my impression of... You know, when they first hired John Beeline, they bring mm-hmm. JB in to be essentially like the head coach in waiting, right? Like that's the general like understanding that eventually this was going to be JB's team. I guess like have they always then viewed him as like the a long term you know solution for their head coach that because of these you know establishing the culture and those things that he's good at did that kind of set him up to be in line for this job ever since he arrived and you know when he wasn't even the head coach yet.
3: I think so. When they went through that whole process, Dan and Ashley, JB was considered one of the front runners the whole time. He impressed them in his first interview. He impressed them every time he had a conversation with them. He had a relationship with Kobe Altman that went back a number of years. Obviously, his father, Bernie Bickerstaff, is in the organization as well. So there are a lot of things about JB that they liked. It's just they thought at the time they needed more of what John Beeline brought to the table in terms of, I guess, being a disciplinarian, in terms of he has built teams before, right? He did it at Michigan. He did it at other stops. And the Cavs were in a situation where they were rebuilding from the ground up. um, And they didn't have a lot going for them. And they were just looking for somebody to do that the early stages of a rebuild that can be very, very taxing, very, very difficult, and then pass the baton to JB. But they've always liked the things that he has brought to the table. And if there are questions about him and about his coaching style, it's more about the X's and O's. It's more about the in-game adjustments. It's more about um, how he's going to handle a seven-game playoff series against some of the best tacticians in the Eastern Conference. Um, But so much about the NBA, when you're dealing with an 82-game grind in the regular season, is about managing personalities, managing egos, and he has found a way to do that. The book is still out on how he's going to be as a playoff-type coach, and those are legitimate questions, and I think even JB wonders how he's going to function in that kind of environment. But during a regular season where you can start hating your teammates, where you can start getting pissed off about the level of travel, where you can let the emotions of a night-to-night disappointing loss get to you. Like, JB has found a way to get these guys to navigate the regular season, and this is now a place where guys want to be a part of it, and and they want um, to see how far they can push this thing.
2: So you mentioned it, the the playoff part of it, where you have to go into that seven-game series. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's it's funny. A guy that the Cavs fired uh, a couple coaches before they landed on J.B., Ty Lu, he's sort of suddenly built this reputation with the Clippers as being a really great tactician and a really great yep. coach in those settings. Of course, we saw it here in Cleveland as well. What gives you confidence that J.B. can be that type of coach who can go head-to-head with someone like that, or, uh, you know, pick any number of guys in a seven game series
3: uh, to, to come out on top. Because I think the thing that stands out to to me about him is his willingness to make difficult decisions. And I think sometimes in a seven game series, you just have to say bleep everything. I'm going to do what I think is best. Right. And if you think about JB last year, before the year even started, he did something that people were questioning. Like everybody around the NBA was like, Is this dude nuts? He's gonna start Lowry Marketing at small forward. Are you kidding me? Like that's not going to work. And he's like, you know what? I'm just gonna see if it works. I have a set of beliefs, I have reasoning behind the decision that I'm going to make. And it was a difficult decision, right? But he was willing to make that decision. And then this year, 14 year 14 games into the year. All of a sudden, you know, he doesn't like the way that Karis Levert looks alongside Darius Garland and Donovan Mitchell, and he pulls him out of the starting lineup and he moves him to the six man spot and he goes with Lamar Stevens. Like, Lamar Stevens of all guys, right? But he felt like at that time, the Cavs needed in the starting lineup what Lamar brought to the table his voice, um, his in your face leadership style, uh, his toughness, his defense, right? And now look at the situation that the Cavs found themselves in when they had to go down the buyout road with Kevin Love. A big part of that is tied to the fact that JB was willing to take Kevin, a future Hall of Famer, a guy whose jersey is going to be hanging in the rafters one day. He took him out of the rotation because he felt like Kevin wasn't giving the Cavs what they ultimately needed. And I think sometimes when you get into a seven-game playoff series, guys— I think you have to make those really, really difficult decisions and you have to be confident in yourself that you have the trust in your guys that you're not going to lose them if you do make those kinds of
0: decisions. Yeah, Chris, we've worked together too long because I was going to lead you down the path of the, the three big <laughs> lineup uh, RIP to that. But kind of going off of that, you know, last year, what strikes me is this team looked so different by doing that. And As a result of doing something unexpected with the lineup, I think we can all agree they had a record and outperformed expectations for themselves. But this year, you know, now that they've traded for Donovan Mitchell, um, a kind of very much a win now move. This is a superstar, I think, that they haven't necessarily had here since the LeBron era, right? Because for as good as Darius Garland is, he's still a younger guy. Donovan's more established. So what kind of changes have you seen with JB coaching a guy like Donovan Mitchell and integrating him into this team that, you know, most parts remained pre from pre-trade?
3: See, that's an interesting point because Donovan came from Utah and Quinn Snyder is considered brilliant by NBA standards. Runs an unbelievable offense, right? Right. And JB's known as a different kind of guy. He's known more for the communication. He's known more as the culture setter. Some people in the NBA look at him as the guy to get you to the next guy, right? But Donovan has spoken glowingly about JB and some of the things that, that JB has brought to the table and some of the styles that JB is willing to implement and some of the things that JB does behind the scenes. So I think that's another key point about JB. Like, it doesn't matter who you are, right? He knows how to communicate with stars. He knows how to communicate with role players. He knows how to communicate with 20-year-olds and 30-year-olds. Like, there isn't the kind of player that you could bring into a locker room that JB probably couldn't get through to from a communication standpoint. Like, he got Kevin... Kevin Love, a future Hall of Famer, to sacrifice at the beginning of last season and step into a six-man role and buy into that role and thrive in that kind of role. And by all accounts, Kevin is an NBA star. Maybe he's not playing like it at this point in his career, but he's accomplished so much that he's earned that kind of status. And Ricky Rubio was willing to come off the bench. So that's the thing that stands out to me. Like, J.B. doesn't treat Donovan different than he treats Mamadi Diakite, right? Everybody has a role within this team and everybody has a place in how they come together as a team. And yeah, Donovan's the most talented player on the roster. Donovan's a guy who has a big voice in that locker room. But if Donovan is screwing up and he's not doing the things on the court or off the court that are demanded of him as a superstar player, as a max contract guy, then JB is going to hold him accountable just the way he would Lamar Stevens and some of these other guys. And that's really, really important.
2: So, and longtime listeners of the podcast will hear my dog in the background. Chris sometimes he likes to uh, to chime in on these conversations. Uh, they know that, but uh, when when it comes to kind of the go big out picture, in your
3: car or something like that, <laughs> no, away from he's, the dog,
0: he's like a character on on the show. Okay, Dan did too many pods in his car and during COVID too. That's when true. We were stuck in the trailer out at Brown, so he doesn't want to go back there. Let him be. Oh.
3: <laughs> oh, wait, what's your dog's name? His name is Buster. So if Buster like barks, does that mean that like, he agrees with my take or your take or Ashley's I, take? Have we?
2: I I I think he's just angry that maybe you're delivering the mail right now or something like that. I don't I don't oh, know. But, right. but, okay, so. <laughs> anyway, um, when you look at kind of what it takes for a coach to be a coach of a championship team, I always think it's interesting to look at the guys that have done it. And let's be honest, sometimes the answer is as simple as, hey, you had LeBron James, or you had Steph Curry, or this was the year you had Kawhi Leonard. And I know know Nick Nurse is thought thought to be one of the best coaches in the league, but Mm -hmm. sometimes it does come down to that. But what do you ultimately think? Because you've mentioned the tactician, you've mentioned the guy that can control the locker room, and I think in the NBA, it can be either guy that can win a title. What what do you think is the most important trait for a championship winning coach?
3: I do think, and I might be in the minority on this one, but I've had a lot of conversations with a lot of people about this. I do think managing personalities is the most important trait. And I get the X's and O's thing, right? But, like, who doesn't know how to defend pick and roll? You know what I mean? Like, who doesn't have great after-timeout plays? Who doesn't have great sets that they can run on the offensive end? And when you get into a seven-game series, like, sometimes it doesn't matter what play you call. It doesn't matter what set you run offensively. It's just about, can you beat your guy? You know what I mean? Like, can you find a way to counter what it is that they're doing to you defensively on the fly, right? Can you um, minimize your own weaknesses and highlight your strengths? So I know that all of that stuff matters, and it's always going to matter. And I think it would be great if you had a coach who was awesome at everything. You know what I mean? But I don't know that that really exists unless you're talking about the best of the best. Um, So I do think the NBA is so unique in the fact that it's a player's league and you have to find a way to get these guys to buy into what you're saying. You have to find a way to get these guys to trust that, you know, when the lights are brightest, you know what you're doing. And a lot of that is built behind the scenes and developing those championship habits so that when you get into the fire and you get into the spotlight and you get into a playoff series, that you have the backing of your players already. You have the trust of your players already. You've already had the difficult conversations that you needed to have. But to me, it's just how do you manage those egos? How do you manage those personalities? And how do you get those guys to come together as a team? Because it's not golf. It's not tennis. Everybody has a role in what a team is going to ultimately become.
0: Yeah, Chris, kind of along those lines, you know, I think about last year, we didn't get to see them in a seven-game series format, but we did kind right. of get to see the Cavs in in a little bit of a postseason environment in a winner-go-home environment via the play-in tournament. And I think, I know you and I were both at that game against the Hawks at home mm-hmm. that ultimately ended their season. And I think what stuck with me from that game kind of like along the lines of what you're talking about is the way the Hawks kind of attacked them. And it, it felt like at times the Caps weren't countering, you know, in particular, they, they really went after Isaac Okoro in that game and, and pick and rolls and, and things like that. They just kind of dissected what Cleveland was doing. Um, so, From your perspective, I guess, do you think that something like that was a learning experience for this group and, you know, for JB and kind of managing those things? And do you think that's going to be important, you know, going forward down the stretch of this season?
3: Yeah, there's no doubt about it. And and I think we've seen signs from an X's and O's standpoint, from a season-long adjustment standpoint, from an in-game adjustment standpoint, that JB has gotten better as the season has gone on, as he's gotten more information, as he's figured out what works, what doesn't work. And I think sometimes people have a problem that it takes them a little bit too long to get there, and sometimes it's not the straightest path, and he takes a winding road to some of these decisions when it comes to his lineups and when it comes to his adjustments and when it comes to some of the stuff that they run in late-game situations. But he has gotten there, and I think all of the information that he has gathered throughout the course of this regular season and going back to the play-in tournament is all stuff that he can bank and all stuff that he can learn from. And it's funny because sometimes to become the coach that you want to become, you have to fail. You have to try and do something that doesn't work, and you have to have some moment where you're like, oh, crap, that's not going to (laughs) work. Let's try something different here. You know what I mean? And I think there's evidence of him getting better as he gathers more information. And to your point, Ashley, if you go back to the play-in tournament, so the first game against Brooklyn... The first playing game against Brooklyn, he starts Isaac Coro and Brooklyn completely ignores him on the defensive end of the floor. They leave him open for back to back to back threes. He gets yanked out of the game and then JB uses a starting lineup that he hadn't used in months with Karis Levert going into the starting lineup for Isaac Coro. That's an example of an adjustment, seeing what worked and what didn't work against Brooklyn. And making that change. And he did it on the fly against Brooklyn. And then he had the, the the boldness and the willingness to do that going into the Atlanta game. And Atlanta was shredding Kevin Love in pick and roll situations. Calling for switches. Trey Young against Kevin Love. Everybody remembers that from the play-in tournament, right? JB didn't play Kevin Love but 10 minutes. And he didn't use him in the second half. It was a bold call. It was a risky call. But that was an adjustment that he learned in the first half of that game. And then he made the change that he thought he needed to make. So he's willing to do those kinds of things. And I think there's enough evidence that if it requires something difficult, he'll still make that change.
2: All right, Chris, I have two more. Um, The first, because part of this discussion is the roster. So this is just Mm -hmm. the big roster question. How yeah. close w- – look, when you go get Donovan Mitchell, when you give up all those picks, you're you're declaring that you're ready to win or you're really close to winning big. Right. Um, so how close is this roster? Is it close enough to make a run this year? Is it a year away? W- where is this team?
3: I don't think they can make a run this year, guys. Um, the, the, the one thing that I think separates – Uh, Boston, Milwaukee, and Philadelphia, the top tier of the Eastern Conference, at least what I consider the top tier of the Eastern Conference, and the Cavs, is the fact that the Cavs haven't accomplished what those teams have. They haven't seen the things that those teams have. They haven't experienced the things that those teams have. They just don't have the level of knowledge and the level of understanding of what it takes in that kind of environment. The playoffs in the regular season are so different. There's just no comparison. Like sometimes teams just go overboard in their strategical decisions in the playoffs and they do things in the playoffs that they simply don't care about even trying in the regular season. And the Cavs are going to be faced with that. Isaac Okoro is going to get 10 to 12 wide open threes every single game. And it is going to be drastic the way that teams crowd the pain on the Cavs to try and take away Darius and Donovan. Like, how do the Cavs counter that? Do they even have the right pieces to counter that kind of strategy? Because I think we can all admit, even though they have Donovan Mitchell, even though they have a really, really talented starting lineup, and they have a talented, you know, seven to eight man rotation, there are holes on this roster. There are weak points on this roster. And opponents are going to try and exploit those. And Milwaukee's been through it, right? Philadelphia's been through it. Boston's been through it. They know what to expect in a way that the Cavs don't. And there's nothing that the Cavs can do about it. They can't duplicate that playoff intensity and that playoff experience in the regular season. They can't. There's no way to do it. So that's the thing to me that still separates the Cavs from those other teams. It's too early for the Cavs. They're they're going to run into one of those teams, and they're just not going to understand how to best handle that moment The way that those other experienced teams are the good thing though from the Cavs standpoint from a roster building standpoint is that it's not championship or bust right this isn't a team that's deep into the luxury tax that has no wiggle room to make improvements on the roster Um, this isn't a team that has a bunch of volatile personalities the way that Brooklyn did and they could combust at any moment, and they did combust at any moment, right? This isn't a team like Milwaukee that could be facing a future without Chris Middleton because he walks in free agency. Donovan, Darius, Evan, Jarrett, the four most important players for the Cavs' success now and into the future are all young, on the same timeline, and under contract for another two to three years. And that gives them some run rate runway to one like internally improve but it also gives the front office some flexibility to go out and try and make uh some moves around the margins to improve the roster so that they have the right pieces when it is go time i would think for the Cavs, they're probably like two years away from like being in that upper echelon of the eastern conference
2: Chris, the big question here for this podcast is which coach, which manager, whatever you want to say, is going to win a championship first in Cleveland. So make your closing argument here. Why do you think it could be J.B.
3: Bickerstaff? If you do. I was going to say, do I have to believe that? (laughs) Because I kind of believe it's the Uh, Guardians. (laughs) I mean, that's that's fair, right? (laughs) <laughs> that is that her. And I'm
2: actually glad. I'm, I'm glad we got that answer out of you because I kind of want to know what everyone else thinks too. Yeah. But let's say the answer is JB. Why would the answer be JB? Maybe that's the way to answer it. If somebody's going to make the case for JB, what would it
3: be? Well, I think part of it has to do with the roster, right? Like a core of Jared Allen, Evan Mobley, Darius Garland, and Donovan Mitchell is pretty damn good by NBA standards. Um, The other thing is, I think JB believes in the things that matter most to success in today's NBA. So since early 2000, which is two decades now, no team in the NBA outside the top 10 in defensive rating has won a championship. No team. And that's what the Cavs are. They're a defense first team. And... I know during the regular season you see all these explosive scoring nights and you see a bunch of guys setting records in terms of point totals and scoring has never been higher and offense is a lot different these days than defense is. Um, But it still matters. When you get into a seven-game series, you're going to have to find a way to get timely stops. And I think having that be the foundation for the Cavs' success is a very, very good starting point. And having young guys that have bought into that end of the floor at the level that they have is a very, very good starting point. Now they've got to find the other things that turn them into a championship team. But I think his core principles um, align with what it takes to be successful at the highest level in the NBA.
2: Okay, that is Chris Fedor. Nobody is as plugged in to the Cavs as Chris, so uh, we appreciate him jumping on here for this podcast. You can follow him, of course, on Twitter, at Chris Fedor. Every now and again, amidst the Cavs tweets, there'll be some Browns tweets that sometimes (laughs) I agree with, Chris. Sometimes I shake my head, Um, but it's uh, it's. It's a little bit of everything over there.
3: <laughs> Isn't that life, though, honestly? Like, who agrees with everything everybody says?
2: Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, there we go. Chris Fedor covers the calves for Cleveland.com. Chris, thanks for taking the time.
3: You got it anytime.
2: All right, welcome back to the podcast. Next up, Doug and I talk to Paul Hoynes from Arizona about Tito Francona. Hoynesy, how are you today? Good, Dan. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Man, Hoynesy, that felt good. That felt like those old days when we used to do the chats together. I don't even remember those. (laughs) But that just – I don't know. Something just clicked in my brain, just that exchange right there. (laughs) All right, let's get to it here. Um, I I was thinking about this. So Terry Francona, hired by the Indians – uh, is this year 10, I believe, or a year – he's been here a long time. When he yeah, first – 10th year, 10th Yeah. When he first got here, um, obviously I know there was a lot of excitement about it. It was a really big deal. But could you have imagined back then that, that he would still be managing this
4: team 10 years later? No, definitely. Uh, I think the longest manager I've covered be- before Tito was like Pat Corral – or no, Grover, you know – Mike Hargrove was here nine years, eight nine years, um, but uh, I did not think I'd see another manager. You know, with uh, kind of the tenure and the longevity of uh, of Hargrove. So Hoynesy, th- this idea—I mean, Tito was
5: so well established when he got here to have multiple World Series rings already when he got hired by the Indians. Did did you think that he would be the manager? to bring a world series championship to Cleveland. You know what I mean? Hoinsey, like when you, yeah. all right, you're not, uh, they run through managers a lot here, but this was kind of a different dude when he got here. Did you think, yeah, no, I think this guy has a chance to do this.
4: Yeah. I would, I I thought that the only re- you know, one of the reasons he came here, he must've had some assurances that they were going to, you know, put some money into the team. They were, they were going to go out into free agency because, you know, I know, uh, you know, Tito's coming off Boston. He had he had taken a year off, and um, you know was looking to get back in the game. But I don't think he would have came come to a, a team that, you know was you know was not going to try try to win. And uh, you know, I think uh, you know obviously the first year he got here, you know they 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 went out and got Swisher. They went out and got Michael Born. They signed a lot. Of, they spent a lot of money in free agency. Those two signings didn't work, but it was an indication of how much you were willing to do with him as a manager.
2: So uh, another thing I've been thinking about is trying to put Tito in perspective with this whole organization. Um, and one of the ways I thought about it was, and I, and I don't want to I say, I don't want to disrespect Mike Hargrove when I ask you this, because I think Mike Hargrove was great. I think he's actually become <clears throat> a little underrated in uh, Indians slash guardians fans minds. Do
4: you think Tito would have won a World Series with those '90s teams. Well, I think yeah, I think uh yeah, I think they had a chance, you know, and uh you know, obviously, what they came within uh, what, what 1997, what yeah, the it was like two 10th, outs, eleventh <laughs> inning. I mean, what they were two, they were two outs away or one out away in the ninth inning. So I think they, they, I think that team was loaded, you know. I mean. The, It's probably, you know, the best team, that best run that I've covered and the best, you know, lineup that I've covered. And they just, you know, at at some point they just, you know, it it just didn't go right for them. I mean, two were, you know, they get to the series in 95, 97. Uh, Would would they have won with Tito? You know, I think uh, you got to look at, you know, Grover was a, a rookie manager. He hadn't managed anywhere else. Um, you know, Tito, you know, coming in, if, you know, if, if everything was equal, uh, uh, Francona, if he had, you know, had the two World Series championships in Boston behind him, I think they would have had a chance, you know, they would have definitely had a chance to win one of those World Series.
5: So I'm, I'm going to make this about me. For a second here, Hoinsy, because it's what I always do on podcasts. So, as yeah. as you guys know, I I covered Tito early in his career when I was a Philadelphia Phillies beat writer, and I covered him for three seasons as a manager of the Phillies. And I was thinking about this, Hoinsy, because I covered Scott Rowland in Philadelphia, and Scott Rowland just made the Hall of Fame, and it made me think, man, I don't know that I thought Scott Rowland was going to be a Hall of Fame player, and I don't, I didn't know I was covering a Hall of Fame manager. <laughs> There's no doubt that Terry Francona is going to be in the baseball hall of fame. Will you, have you asked him this? Will you ask him this? Is well, he going to wear he, a Cleveland cap when he goes in? He's 10 years in Cleveland. Now it was only eight in Boston. I know he has two world series in Boston, but doesn't he belong to Cleveland now? He's got to go in with a Cleveland cap, right?
4: Yeah. I would think if he gets in there, I would think he would go in with a Cleveland cap. I mean, you know, his dad played here. He's got Cleveland roots. Uh, you know, that'd be an interesting question. You know, I'd, I'd, I'm not sure, but, I don't know if the I don't think the Hall of Fame. I think, I don't know if the, the Hall usually try, sometimes makes the call with the player when there's you know it's close with if it, like uh, Manny Ramirez you know split between Cleveland and Boston. I, but I don't know if they do that with the manager. So one of the things about
2: Tito that struck me, and, and back in 2013, um, I was I was actually on the road with you for a series in Minnesota, and um, I got I got a video of Tito talking about it might have been talking about a scooter even way back then. Um, writing it around Boston. I tweeted it out and every response I got was not every, but a lot of the responses were from Boston fans saying how much they loved this guy. Um, Everybody seems to love Tito, including his players. Is that, is that his biggest asset? The fact that the guys just seem to gravitate to him. And he's so good at just relating to players and managing that clubhouse day to day.
4: Yeah, I think that's, that's a good point, Dan. Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, they, they like him, but, you know, they can – they're always – they're at he, – he has a relationship where, you know, he gets along with players, but he can still send a guy down to, you know, to Columbus. He can still have that hard conversation where, you know, the guy is either getting released, getting traded, or getting, you know, sent to the minors. I, I, I don't think, you know, that, that line has ever crossed, but he really um, – he develops his, his, a good relationship with his players. I think he does his best work like in the dugout about a half hour, 45 minutes before the game, he goes down there, you know, he meets and talks to the players, um, in you know, one-on-one and it's not, you know, it's not a long conversation. It'd be, could be, it could be just a couple minutes, but you know, he gets his point across and, you know, like, and like Doug was saying, he's got street cred. He's been, he's won two world series and, you know, I, and I think he can relate. You know, he can relate to superstars, and he can relate to the twenty-sixth guy in the roster because he was the twenty-sixth guy in the roster, and he and he should have been a superstar. He was a superstar in college. He was,
5: he was a superstar early in his career until his knees fell apart. So it is. He's lived this interesting life that he he's been kind of on top of the baseball world, and he's been the kind of guy trying to hang on as the last guy on the bench. Pointy, when we look at this 10 year run for Tito so far, six playoff appearances in ten years, only one year under five hundred, how would you how important has he been to this run of Guardians success? Would with the, the pitching they've had and some of the, the rare position players they've had come through, Jose Ramirez, Francisco Lindor, guys like that, would they have been this good with a lot of managers? Or was this a guy who had to be here for them to succeed to this level?
4: Yeah, I think I think it was a good marriage, Doug. I think this was the timing was good. You know, they just haven't, you know, got to the final one, won a World Series yet, but they've done everything else. But and I think uh, you saw the difference, you know, when Francona was out in uh, 2021. You know, they don't. Um, I think he he is a big asset, and when he's in the dugout for 162 games like he was last year. They're a much better team.
2: When you look at, you know, you mentioned when he took the job, they spent right away in 2016, you know, they I think they went about as all in as, as they're ever going to go in 2016 when they made that trade um, to, to go get Andrew Miller and kind of turned that into like the modern day bullpen. Um, but has, has Terry been hamstrung at all? Do you think by ownership and what do you think he could do if he had just a little bit more? I mean, like last year, I don't think anybody expected that team to even sniff the playoffs last year. And he had them in game five against the Yankees.
4: Yeah, that's a good point. And uh, I think, yes, uh, I th- it, it's a strange kind of uh, situation. You know, I don't think he wants to manage anywhere else. But if he was managing, like in Boston or New York or San Diego or, or, or the Dodgers, you know, I think he would have won a World Series, a third World Series. I think what hurts him here in Cleveland is taking that final step. You know, you saw it against the Yankees in the ALDS. Like you said, Dan, no one expected them to, to be where they were. You know, they didn't make any moves in the offseason. They didn't make any moves at the, at the deadline. You know, and I think, you know, that one reason you, you wanted to give your young guys a chance. And I, the other reason is, you know, financially. And and, and they get into the ALDS. They take the Yankees to five games. And who hits the home? you know, the kind of the go-ahead home run in the first inning? Stanton, who's making, you know, $325 million. And, you know, talent at that point of the postseason always wins, to me. I mean, that that's where it counts. The Indians' talent – has not developed to that point yet. The Yankees had a, had a a lineup full of those guys. So as we
5: like ponder this, this question, Hoynzy of what we're talking about here, which is which person leading a Cleveland team is, is going to win the next championship. Are the guardians in a position to have a legitimate conversation about this? Are they a team with the payroll they have with the lineup as it's currently constituted with this pitching staff, when you look at the future, is this a reasonable discussion? And again, Tito's 63 years old, and he's, he acts like he's 83 sometimes. <laughs> and I think he would admit that as much as anybody else would. Can we even have this conversation, Poinsie, are they Are they still in a position to really go after it here? Or as Dan said, you saw the Andrew Miller trade. We've seen them kind of go for it in the recent past and fall <laughs> – uh, you know, they got as close as you can get without winning a world series. Are they just not that in that position right now as a franchise? You know,
4: uh, that, that's a good question um, because, you know, you look at, I mean, re- definitely Ramirez is, you know, he's, he's a, he's a, you know, he's a bona fide su- pl- player. He's, he's a world series t- type player. You can win a world series with him, but his Quan is, uh, is Oscar uh, uh, Gonzalez is uh, you know uh, uh, Josh Naylor, you know th- there's a lot of guys that are so young on that club that you don't know what you know how the what they'll do when they get to the postseason, how they're going to react this year after having such a good year last year. Uh, but I think they're in the right division, and they have shown that if they get it get into the postseason, and we all know, I mean, it just you just have to be hot at the right time. They have the closer. They have the starting rotation when it's healthy. You know, they could do some damage in in, in the postseason. So I think they're definitely worthy of the conversation.
2: Yeah, the, the Jose Ramirez thing is kind of drives the point home, though, a little far. Like here's a guy that stayed, they did pay him, um, but then he gets hurt and he's playing hurt the rest of the season, and they just don't have anybody behind him that can really step up and help uh when they really needed it. So I I want to ask you about another part of Tito's game as a manager. Um, And I don't know if this is like legitimate or I don't know if this is just everybody on Twitter trying to be smarter than everybody else. (laughs) There are complaints when you watch guardians games about Tito, the technician, like the in-game decision maker. How, what do you think of him as an in-game manager in in those nine innings? Not, not the full one sixty-two, but just that one through nine every day.
4: I think he, I think he does a good job. He's, he's uh, you know, he does, like, uh, you know, he's he's not going to change the lineup every day. You know, when, once he settles on a lineup, you know, there's going to be four, five, six spots where he doesn't touch. You know, the other three or four, three spots in the lineup he'll, you know, he'll tinker with. But, you know, coming into, I thought, I think he's really, he handles that bullpen really well, you know, and he's got the horses now, you know, and it takes him, like most managers, it takes him like a month, a month and a half to kind of, sort through the bullpen and find the different roles. But, and, you know, I think when he makes a decision, he's, you know, he he really kind of sticks by it. And some, if there's a fault, maybe he sticks with his decisions too long. Like uh, last year's staying with the Miles straw in the leadoff spot when, you know, it was apparent to to everybody that straw was really struggling. And finally he makes the move and, and puts Quan in there and they take off. But I think, in-game decisions, I think he's fine. I really do. And I do
5: think, Koinze, it's what we talked about earlier with Tito. I've always thought, and th- and this I thought was true in Philadelphia as well, that maybe his greatest strength and his greatest weakness sometimes is the same thing. I do think there's that loyalty, Koinze, that sometimes he really, he'll stick with the guy and I think really bring out the best in a player. But I do, is it has it not been the case at times where he'll stick with the guy and it's like, okay, this is not it. <laughs> and he'll hang with the guy cuz he really wants to believe in him. That I always say, for most of us, our greatest strengths and our greatest weaknesses can be the same thing. Do you think that applies here?
4: Yeah, in in certain instances, yes. Yeah, I thought, you know, the straw thing was was a great example of it. I mean, I remember when Brian Shaw was had his ups and downs and we would ask him, you know, is Shaw coming out of the, the setup role? And he goes, No, he's going to be in there tomorrow. And you know, he had just gotten you know, given up a three run homer to somebody against the Tigers, and, and you know, and he he that, you know, he really does stick with uh, his guys. And but he but he always has a good explanation. He goes, Okay, you know, if I take this guy out of that role, who do I put in there? And you know, you and he and he he explains it like you've got to have somebody to replace him, or it doesn't make sense to make the move.
2: All right. So, uh we touched on this with, with Chris Fedor when we were talking about J.B. Bickerstaff. Um, and, you know, for him, he thought the strength was his ability to manage the team day to day. And he thought that was maybe the most important thing for an, for an NBA head coach. When you look at a baseball manager, if somebody told you to go hire a baseball manager and you had to choose between, you know, the perfect technician who seems to always <laughs> make the right choice or the guy that can just manage that clubhouse and keep things steady for for that long season. What do you think is most important? Wh- which would you choose?
4: Yeah, I, I think you got to have a little of both, Dan. And you and you, the biggest thing with with managers now is they have to relate to the front office. They they're they're basic. They're pretty much not the, the face of the franchise anymore. I mean, Tito is, but he's he's you know he's the uh, the outlier. You know, uh, mo- because most of the, most of uh, teams are hiring younger managers that are into analytics. That really, uh, you know, that that the front office is calling a majority of the shots when it comes to the lineups, when it comes to the roster, you know, composition, all that, and uh, you know, they 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 you know they uh, they talk about pregame moves, and I think they still do that in Cleveland, obviously with Chris Antonetti and Cher- Mike Chernoff. You know but you know Tito has the last call here once the game starts
5: I do think I don't know could they send Tito over and give some culture lessons in Berea my <laughs> gosh I think I would take the guy who can handle the lock especially in baseball with as long as that season and I think I think the, a guy like Tito who can manage the egos and and keep guys on track through the ups and downs is is so valuable P- part of this discussion Hoysey I, I mentioned it before you know Tito jokes about the way his body is breaking down as much as anybody, how much longer do you see him going? Because that's part of a conversation for something like this is, will, will he keep doing this? You mentioned he, he stepped away a couple seasons ago for a while. Like is, is his health a real issue when it comes to his future with the
4: Guardians and how much longer he's going to keep doing this? Yeah, I think definitely it is, uh, uh, Doug. I, I think um... – you know, he he's really kind of. They've given him a free pass. He can manage here as long as he wants, uh, and it's really Tito's calling the shots now. Last year, he was, you know, I think he he was coming back. He was healthy. Uh, this year, you know, he he's you know he's on the field a little more. He's he's hitting fungos. You know, he's he's helping out. He's he's moving around a little better. But I think you know he's you know he's got grandkids. I think uh, you know that that's in the back of his mind that you know, one of these days, as long as he, he would like to leave the game healthy, you know, where he could enjoy the rest of his life. So I don't know how much longer he's going to do this, um, but I, I think he's, he's got, you know, the door is open. I mean, he's he can call his own shots here.
2: All right, Wednesday, I want to wrap this up um, and, and get to kind of the two bigger questions. But before I do that, I asked you that Mike Hargrove question earlier, and, and I had something in mind when I asked you that because when I look at Tito, obviously – He's got the wins, right? Most wins in, in franchise history, um, I believe. and yeah. But he doesn't have the World Series that maybe a couple other guys have. But do you think he's the best manager in franchise
4: history? He's the best manager I've covered. <laughs> so, I mean, that's that covers 40 years. So I think he's – you know, him and Grover are really close. I just think, uh, you know – Francona came in with the experience and that helped him a lot. He wasn't learning on the job, you know, uh, and he, you know, he came up through the minors like, like Grover did managing in the minors. Um, but, you know, he had the the major league experience where, where Mike didn't, but I, uh, you know, they're close, but right now, the way things have gone, the the way he's the job he did with the team last year and, you know, how young they were and the talent kind of level they had. I, you know, I think he's, you know he can he can manage just about any kind of roster and I think he's shown that in the 10 years in Cleveland. Wait, Dan, you said he doesn't have the World Series ring like I'm, some I'm, guys do. You mean Lou Boudreau
5: and <laughs> Tris yeah, Speaker right. and
0: the Cardinals.
5: <laughs> that's fair. That's that's fair. I mean, hey, he's no Tris Speaker 1920, <laughs> man. What are you going to do? The
4: Gray Eagle. <laughs> <laughs>
5: All right. Fair enough.
2: I've rightly called out on that one. <laughs> All right. So, Hoinsie, I, I want to wrap this up with two questions. The first is, I, I kind of want your opinion on on the big picture question we're asking in this podcast. Of these three men, uh, Tito, J.B. Bickerstaff, and Kevin Stefanski, who do you think has the best chance to win a championship in Cleveland first?
4: Jeez, I uh, you know, <laughs> I would I would go with the Cavs. I think because it only takes five players. You may, and you, if you can bring in one or two dominant players, you can really, you know, that that can turn the franchise around. We saw that with LeBron, and I just think there's a certain ceiling on on the Guardians. You know, they get to that that glass ceiling, and they haven't been able to break through it yet. And I don't know if they ever will. And the Browns. Dan, I just it just looks like a car wreck every season. I I, 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 just, I I'm hoping they 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 do it, but something always seems to derail them. So, but I you know I think the Cavs have a shot. They're young. Um, I would go Cavs, Guardians, Browns. Okay, so so now I'm going to ask you to kind of go
2: against a little bit what what you just said. And we're going to pretend this is like an episode of Shark Tank or something. You're trying to pitch us on why it's going to be Terry Francona. So if you had to make the argument that it was going to be Terry, what would it be?
4: I think, you know, obviously the experience. You know, he's been to three World Series. He won two. He took uh, the his other team, the, the the then Indians, to game seven uh, in extra innings. And without that rain delay, they, they might be a, a World Series champ against the Cubs. Um, I just think uh, he's been there. He's done that. Uh, his team believes in him, and they've they've got it. He knows how to build a bullpen, and they produce them. You know they, they they have they are stacked with starting pitching, and uh, I think uh, you know they showed they can they can win without hitting home runs. And I, I don't know if that plays in the postseason. I think that's a shortcoming. But if anybody can get a team to the World Series championship, I think it's it's Francona. If if there's a flaw, and, and every team has a flaw,
5: Dan, let me let me jump in here because I I, I want to sort of take that next step with that conversation. Then Hoinze, whenever Tito does hang it up, do you think the next manager of the Guardians will be better, or do you think that it's possible that? the Guardians will really miss Terry Francona because what I'm wondering, Hoinze, is you're talking about the, obviously we all know the way baseball has moved towards analytics and this has been a very smart front office, but Terry Francona seems to be the kind of guy who is open to analytics, but is that old school baseball guy and is built on relationships. I wonder if, if, would you think, Hoinze, whenever Tito's done, the next guy might be a younger analytics driven guy. And then maybe that doesn't, Maybe that doesn't work as well with everything the Guardians need out of their manager. When he's gone, how much do you
4: think he'll be missed in Cleveland? I think he'll be missed really. <laughs> that's going to be a big hole in in that manager's uh, office. I think you know because Doug, like you were saying, he combines that old school philosophy, you know, as a manager, but he's also open to analytics. He he you know he if you see him before the for the game and. He, Wherever he is in the dugout, he's got like a, a plexiglass full of stats taped, you know, p- posted to the wall. So he's a believer in that. You know, he he, he knows what he wants out of the, uh, you know, the analytics. But he's also like very, very good at handling players, you know, keeping the peace in the locker room. And uh, so anybody who replaces him, you know, I don't think you're going to find that combination. So it's going to be whoever replaces him is going to be, you know, kind of a in for a tough, tough goal, I think.
2: Okay, Hoinsy, we're going to let you go. I got to go try and find somebody who covered Trist Speaker so that we can do a, a whole segment on on him as well. <laughs> All right, that is that is Paul Hoynes. Uh, does a great job, of course, covering the Guardians. He's been doing it for a long time. Uh, he is joining us from spring training. So I, I know these days are busy, Hoinsy. so I really appreciate you uh, carving out some time to talk to us about Tito Francona.
4: No problem, guys. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Hoinsy.
2: And welcome back again. Last up, Mary Kay Cabot tells us all about Kevin Stefanski. She talks with Doug
5: and Ashley. So we're here to talk Browns with this question. We have Mary Kay Cabot to answer the questions Ashley Bastock and I will be asking them. Mary Kay, off the bat, before we dig in specifically on Kevin Stefanski, how important is a head coach to the success of an NFL team, in your opinion?
6: I think an NFL head coach is vitally important because there are so many moving parts. There are so many pieces. And I think the head coach is really so much more important probably in the NFL than perhaps the NBA or, or, uh, you know, some other sports. I think that, uh, the play caller has such a vitally important role. You could see that with Andy Reid and Patrick Mahomes. And, uh, you know, there are just so many aspects of the football team. It is just the ultimate team game, but not just the team game. It's many, many people playing this game. So I think the head coach of an NFL team is just vitally important.
0: So Mary Kay, with Kevin Stefanski specifically, if we can kind of go back to his arrival in Cleveland with this regime, I guess what made them want to hire Kevin Stefanski in the first place? What did they think he would do well and I guess, how well do you think that's translated in his first three years as head coach?
6: Well, I, I think that Andrew Barry and Paul DePodesta saw a lot of qualities in Kevin Stefanski uh, that they really were looking for in their head coach. And uh, first of all, I think that they were looking for a leader of men. I think they really felt that he was someone uh, that could pull together a whole organization and lead people in the way that that they wanted him to. I think they saw that he was unflappable. I think they liked that about him, uh, that, you know, that he's a sort of a cool customer when it comes to getting the job done and that he's not, you know, super overly emotional and that he can handle the ups and downs and the craziness and all the madness that goes on, uh, in an NFL season and all the things that happen with players. Every single time you turn around, you're putting out another fire. So I think that they felt really, really good about all those aspects of Kevin. And then I do think that they saw plenty in him in terms of the offensive football acumen that he had, that he was a good play caller and that he could get the job done from that standpoint and that he could potentially turn into the next, you know, Andy Reid, creative, brilliant, offensive mind. I I really do think uh, that they saw some of those qualities in him.
5: Mary Kay, that balance, right, for Kevin and for any NFL head coach of being the guy in the locker room who can create a culture and be a leader of men, but also having on either side of the ball that game plan, that play calling, analytics being involved, just understanding the nuances of the game. Is that hard to find? Do you think – because I think everybody wants like a guy who can be both. And some, I would think in the league maybe there's some guys who are more cultural leaders. Maybe there are some guys who are more play caller analytics guys. Do you think Kevin is both can be both? And is that hard to find or not?
6: I think it is hard to find. I think everyone thinks that they're going to nail it and that they have the guy that can get it done. But until you're in that job, until you're in that head chair, you don't know how these guys are going to respond, how the players are going to respond to them and how it all comes together. Uh, As I mentioned in certain sports, uh, you know, you're only dealing with, you know, in some cases, 12, 13 key players in football you obviously have so many more players to deal with. So that's one thing, you know, a coordinator might be able to handle half of a football team, but when you give them the whole football team and everything that comes with it, uh, they have risen to their level of not incompetence, but they're not as good as they were uh, when they were coordinators. So you never really know until you put that guy in the job. Now I see, I think that Kevin has done a really good job, with a lot of things. Um, and, and he definitely has areas where he needs to improve. And I think when you look at his first three seasons, it's been characterized by a lot of upheaval, a lot of controversy. Uh, you know, a lot of things have happened in his first three seasons. Um, you can start right away with the the COVID situation. You know, the minute he took the job, It was basically locked down. You're going online and that's how you're going to get your job done. You're all going to be remote and you're going to put together a football team over Zoom. And so that was the first thing that he had to do. The next thing that he had to do was deal with this player and that player and this position group and that coach, uh, being kept at home because of COVID-19. So even the first two years were, were somewhat marked by you know, by COVID issues. And, you know, I I think that was, that was really, really difficult. Uh, You know, last year was really the first year where he didn't really have to deal with that per se, Uh, but there were still, there were still things. So that, that was one of the first, you know, sort of little obstacles he had to overcome, not little. And then, um, then you had the whole Baker in his second year, he had to deal with a very difficult situation with Baker Mayfield and Odell Beckham Jr. And that, you know, that kind of, I would say that that basically kind of derailed the season. I mean, that was, that was a bad situation last year. Then you move to this year and all kinds of things seem to go wrong this year, including your, um, your star defensive player flipping his Porsche. And then unbeknownst to us early on in the season, unbeknownst to us until late in the season, and Clowney basically gave up on this football team and was disgruntled the whole season and refused to play in a very, very big game against the Baltimore Ravens, a loss in Baltimore. So it's just been a, a weird, it seems like it's been a, a weird couple of, of years with a lot of fires to put out and different things of that nature. This year, of course, um, also brought, the entire Deshaun Watson controversy, okay? So you go from, like I said, COVID to Baker O'Dell to Deshaun Watson. I mean, nothing has been normal about Kevin Stefanski's 10 years so far. Nothing about it has been No No other coach in the history of the NFL has had to deal with the Deshaun Watson situation. Nobody. So, you know, it, it was almost like they were prescient in trying to find someone who could kind of Stay calm through the madness and the craziness because he has been able to do that. Now he's got to take this team really to the next level and get it to the playoffs and eventually for them, hopefully to the Super Bowl with this roster that he has now.
5: I I know it's Ashley's turn. I just want (laughs) I, I wish I could ask Mary Kay to rank in order the most difficult things to handle a global pandemic, accusations of sexual misconduct or Baker. (laughs) <laughs> like, ah, oh, which is that it's like, Oh, it's all three. Sorry. You forgot ahead, Odell Mary. Beckham senior, Doug. I know, I know. Or <laughs> or a, a TikTok video, or whatever it was. Sorry, Ashley, yeah. go ahead.
0: It's okay. It's okay. So Mary and Kay, off of what you said there, like let's bring up the Deshaun Watson of it all, because I think when we've talked about this move, you know, over the last year, it's been largely like in the context of this is the kind of move you make as a franchise. If you are going to win a Super Bowl, you go after this kind of quarterback. Um, So I guess my question largely, and and I guess it's kind of a simple question, is how important is the relationship between, you know, a a franchise quarterback in the NFL and the head coach in the NFL, especially when that's an, an offensive head coach, which, of course, we're seeing more and more of.
6: I think it's vitally important, but not necessarily from a warm and fuzzy standpoint all the time. I don't think you have to be best friends. I don't think you necessarily have to be chummy. I just think you have to have a really good working relationship. I think you have to communicate well, and I think there has to be implicit trust. Uh, so those are some of the important things that you have to have in the relationship. Who knows? I don't know that Tom Brady and Bill Belichick were you know, sitting around shooting the breeze all the time together or thinking about, you know, getting together, you know, over dinner one night. I don't know if it was anything like that at all. I doubt it. Um, But what you have to have is you have to be able to understand what each other needs. You have to be able to trust each other uh, more so than anybody else in the organization. You have to be on the same page and uh, and you have to know how to, the coach has to know how to bring out the best in the quarterback and and call the right kind of a game for him on game day. And that's why I think uh like Andy Reid and Patrick Mahomes are just poetry in motion. It's it's a beautiful synergy between the two of them. It's unbelievable. And to hear Patrick talk about it, even after the Super Bowl, he was talking about, you know, How lucky am I that I got to land here with Andy Reid and I don't think I would be uh, in this position where I'm at right now winning my second Super Bowl at the age of whatever he is, 26 or 27, uh, if it wasn't for Andy Reid. And then you see Andy calling things like the uh, jet motion reverse. I mean, twice for touchdowns, right? I mean, going back to Rose Bowls in 19-whatever, you know, decades and decades ago to pull out plays. It's just Incredible to watch how Andy Reid has done this. And that's where I think Kevin Stefanski, uh, I think he needs to step that up. He needs to demonstrate and show that he is a dynamic, brilliant play caller. That's what we need to see from him. Now he's got the quarterback. Now, would Andy Reid be this dynamic, amazing play caller with Chad Henney? Probably not. It's a whole lot easier to be a great play caller when you have a quarterback who has no limitations, when he has arm talent that is off the charts, when he can do absolutely anything and he can process very quickly. So now that Kevin Stefanski has that, let's see what he's made of and what he can bring out of Deshaun Watson.
5: I was getting really excited for a while there, Mary Kaz. Like, yeah, Andy Reid's the answer. It's like, no, Andy Reid's not in Cleveland. Okay, so we have to, we're trying to find the best. Mary Kay, talk about, again, these two things that a head coach really has to do. Where do you think Kevin needs to take the bigger step? You just laid out that side of it, dynamic play calling. But then there also is this locker room culture issue, and you laid out some of the issues that have been here. What needs more improvement from Kevin Stefanski, play calling or leadership?
6: Well, I'll tell you what. I just wrote a column today about – Uh, the fact that he upgraded two of his coordinator spots with Jim Schwartz and Bubba Ventron. Now, I think what he's going to get out of those two guys, in addition to some really great coordinating, I think you're going to see a culture change on those sides of the ball. Let's just take Bubba, for instance. I remember Bubba as a player. I mean, he's just one of those passionate guys that, you know, you might end up seeing him, you know, run down, you know, run down the field on, you know, when somebody's, you know, making a nice long kickoff return or something like that. He brings a lot of energy, he brings a lot of passion. So and and that's not Kevin. So if you don't have those things in yourself, you know, maybe it's okay that your you know some of your coordinators have those things. In terms of, of discipline, okay. Is Kevin the kind of disciplinarian that would look at what Jadavian Clowney did last year? in Baltimore and say, forget it. He's not going to play the next two games. Well, you know what? Maybe that's not his style, but maybe the defensive coordinator is going to bring the hammer down in a way that Kevin might not necessarily have done that. So I think the job number one for Kevin Stefanski is to be the amazing play caller. Why? Because that's his number one job right now. That's what he has to do. Yes. He has to oversee the whole process, but what he has to do more so than anything is get in touch with his inner Andy Reid. That's what he needs to do. Because now I think that there is such amazing leadership at the coordinator positions, defensively, special teams-wise, that he can do that. He doesn't have to worry about the defense at all. He doesn't have to worry about Jim Schwartz's defense. Not only has Jim Schwartz been a defensive coordinator for 14 years, he's been a head coach for five years. So he knows what he's doing. And, uh, and Kevin Stefanski can kind of sign off. And basically the same thing with Bubba Van Trump. It's almost the same. It really is the same thing. For the past five years, he's presu- he has presided over some of the best special teams in the country, including once when they were second, according to the Rick Goslin rankings, the gold standard for special teams rankings. So he doesn't have to worry about that anymore. In fact, Cade York. I I went back today and I looked at uh, Chase McLaughlin, who left Cleveland after making only four of 10 field goals between 40 and 49 yards last year. He made nine of 11 under Bubba Ventrone in Indianapolis. Was it coaching? I don't know. Was that the difference? I mean, we will find out. The rankings were not good here on special teams over the last four years under Mike Creeper. The rankings in Indy were phenomenal. So I think Kevin Stefanski has upgraded those positions, freed himself up to unlock his magic.
0: So Mary Kay, I think when we've talked about Kevin Stefanski and the Browns offense over the last two years or, or other analysts have or people on Twitter, there's this criticism that's come up with him that maybe he's not that creative or not being aggressive enough or not adaptable enough. I mean, do you think knowing everything we know about him that he is able going to be able to adapt more when there is a full season of Deshaun Watson that he has ahead of him? And like, just how much I guess do we think this offense can adapt to, to suit Deshaun Watson's needs?
6: Well, I think it can. I think that they need to add. And I've been saying this and saying it over and over until I have driven people crazy with it. But I do think they need to add two sort of fast, twitchy receivers. Uh, and I, I always say sort of like the poor man's Tyreek Hill kind of guys. I mean, look what happened when the Chiefs lost Tyreek Hill. They went out and they just loaded up on some of those guys. And I think the Browns need to do that. I don't think they should leave themselves with any limitations, and I don't think they should expect Deshaun Watson to elevate and raise the play of receivers that might not be ready uh, to go out there and just knock the world over yet. Um, but I do think that for the first time, for a full season, he will have an elite quarterback to work with, and now it's show-me time. Like, what can you do? Now you have what you need, especially a quarterback, hopefully for him and for them. They will add those pieces at receiver that he needs. Um, who knows? Maybe another dynamic tight end would be in order too. And I've said this before too, that David Njoku needs to step up his game. They paid him. Okay. Now live up to that and more so knock it out of the park. Um, so I think that Kevin Stefanski has no limitations on what kind of a game he can call. I think that he is, and I always say this too, that he's, uh, you know, he's a growth mindset coach. And he's someone that has pulled from a lot of different areas offensively. And he has just this wealth of knowledge of different offensive styles and plays and different things. Uh, you know, perhaps he should have a designated person on his offensive staff that can just go out and try to find some of those jet motion reverses. If he doesn't have time to, to scour film from, from different places, uh, you know, it might help him to bring in a college offensive guy to just to, you know, incorporate some of the, uh, you know, the concepts that you're seeing from some of these dual threat quarterbacks, which, which are so in vogue in the NFL. But, you know, I think he's smart enough and open-minded enough to, to be really good at this, but now he's really got to prove it now that he's got the guy to do it with.
5: I don't mean to put you on the spot, Mary Kay, but I'm going to put you on the spot. Do you know how many head coaches the Browns have had since they came back off the top of your head?
6: Um, I don't know off the top of my head, to be honest with you. Um, it's 10. It's 10. Okay. Thank you.
5: Plus two interims. So over, so, but just 10 full. How often since they came back, you're talking about everything that a head coach needs. Have you thought to yourself that the head coach of the Browns? Yep. That guy's got it.
6: You know, I haven't really thought that very often. I, I haven't thought that very often. And part of the reason why I probably haven't felt that way is is because, you know, they they never had the quarterback to do it with either. You know, I probably would have felt a lot better about some of the coaches had they had that quarterback. But they struggled all the way up until really now to get the kind of quarterback that can contend legitimately for the playoffs and the Super Bowl. Everybody thought that was going to be Baker Mayfield. uh, But as time went on, it became evident that Baker had some Deficiencies and defenses kind of caught up to him a little bit. And who knows what Baker still might turn out to be. We're not really sure yet. Uh, you know, his career is not over yet. And maybe, uh, someone like a Sean McVay or someone like that will be able to get more out of him. Uh, but I never really felt like that about any of the other coaches were here. I cannot honestly say that I, that I felt like they had, uh, you know, hit the jackpot.
0: So I guess Mary Kay, like the whole point of this conversation is looking at these three coaches slash slash managers, because I know how much Terry Francona hates being called coach um, and figuring out, you know, which of these guys is most likely to be the next, you know, be the first one in Cleveland to win a title out of the three. So I guess if you were making the case for why it would be Kevin Stefanski, if he were the one to accomplish it, why would he be the one of these three to accomplish it?
6: OK, so in making the case for Kevin Stefanski, I certainly would put a quarterback way, way high up on the list. Having that quarterback, I mean, take Tom Brady away from Bill Belichick. It gets a whole lot harder to be the the greatest coach uh, in the history of the NFL when you don't have Tom Brady. I mean, it's just it's, it's very difficult. Uh, so I'm going to say, you know, the fact that he has the quarterback now. The quarterback's got to be the quarterback that everybody thinks he is. And we'll see how that goes uh, this year. It should be better than it was last year for so many different reasons. Um, but he's got the quarterback. And if you have that, you have half the battle is won. Then, as I mentioned before, uh, he upgraded his staff. He upgraded two out of his three coordinators in this offseason. And so now he he should be ahead of the game in that regard. I do think um, from a personnel standpoint, I think they understand the urgency of adding some pieces, some key pieces to this football team. And we pretty much know what they are. They're pretty obvious. I mean, you really have to get that defensive tackle. You've got to get that number two edge uh, to replace Jadavian Clowney. I think you might even need, need like another number three edge while you're waiting for Alex Wright to kind of come around. Uh, so I think they need to add that. I think they need to add the receivers that we've talked about. Um but I think they'll do that. I think Andrew Barry is an aggressive uh, player, acquirer. <laughs> I, I think he's really, he goes out and, and he works really hard each offseason to significantly upgrade the team. And I think they'll he'll do that again, even though they don't have a bunch of cap space right now to do it. But they will find it. They will find the space. Um, so, I, you know, I think the roster is pretty good. I think it's good. Here's another thing that has to happen. In terms of the defense, they have to hope that Jim Schwartz can pull out the talent of some of these young guys that they believe are really talented. And then they will soon know, were they as talented as we thought they were when we drafted them or are they not? If Jim Schwartz can't get anything out of some of these guys, then maybe we overestimated and we have to go back to the drawing board in some of these areas. Uh, but I think for the most part, he has the roster to get there with the additions that we talked about. He now has a better staff to get there. He's got a better quarterback to get there. And I know him well enough to know, after covering him for these three seasons so far, uh, that he's working very hard this offseason to improve himself. He, he I'm sure he's char- charged everyone or tasked everyone with going out, educating themselves, getting better, come back, show me what you have. And I think he does that himself. So I think he'll also be better this year and he needs to be.
5: Mary Kay, you're the ultimate insider on the Browns and on on Kevin Stefanski. You're not, you're not supposed to be on the guardians and the Cavs. but if you were going to vote in this, which coach in Cleveland do you think manager is most likely to win that next title? Is it Kevin Stefanski? Is it Terry Francona? Is it JB Bickerstaff?
6: It's, It's a great question. And as you mentioned, I, you know, only one-third of those are, is my area of expertise. Um, so it's, it's a very difficult question to answer because there are so many extenuating circumstances when you talk about this. It, it, it has to be all the pieces and parts have to come together correctly. One thing that I think will make it very difficult for the Cleveland Browns to make it to a Super Bowl is the fact that uh, right now, Deshaun Watson is playing in the Patrick Mahomes era. Anybody that's playing in the Patrick Mahomes era is going to find it very, very difficult to get past that amazing dynamic duo of Patrick and Andrew Reid. It's not only that. You've got to get past Joe Burrow. You've got to get past Josh Allen. And then there are more and more good young quarterbacks coming into the game. And it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy. The, the league is in a renaissance of, of quarterbacks right now, um, but at least the Browns are competitive. They got one uh, that makes them competitive. So, you know, I think I am going to say the Cleveland Browns and Kevin Stefanski, I think I am going to say that he has the best chance of winning a title with this team in this town.
5: And we should let you go there, but I'm not going to. I'm going to ask one more question. How long of a leash does Kevin Stefanski have in your mind? Do they have to make the playoffs this year or he's potentially in trouble? Do the Haslams and Andrew Barry love him and they think they have the right guy and they're not going to have any single season make or break it? How how locked in is Kevin Stefanski as the head coach of the Cleveland Browns?
6: You know, I think the leash is, is pretty long. I, I don't think that they're looking at this year like, you know, he could be gone if things don't go right. But you never know because the Haslams are not patient people. And I say this over and over again. Uh, each year that Deshaun Watson steps out there, that's $46 million, an average of $46 million. They have already wasted one-fifth of that last year. Now they're in year two of the $46 million a year. They went out to buy themselves a championship. And so, you know, you do definitely want that to happen. I think it would... Uh, depend a lot on how it shakes out. If they, let's say, they narrowly miss the playoffs by, you know, because of tiebreakers, but Deshaun played really well and they look like they're on the brink. And you know, I mean, maybe, you know, maybe that, you know, changes the the picture. If they're a train wreck, then certainly those things take on a life of, of their own. If they're a train wreck and they're losing a bunch of games. You know, that, that has a tendency to really snowball. So anything can happen. But I think they're heading into this season really feeling like, okay, this is it. You have everything that you want. Now you've got your coordinators that you, you know, your upgraded coordinators. You've got your quarterback. We think you are going to be successful. So I think that's what the vibe is. I don't think anybody's heading into this thinking that it's not going to work out right. I don't know what will happen if it completely goes in the tank. But I think they want Kevin to be their guy for a long time.
5: Mary Kay Cabot, great as always. Thanks for the insight.
6: Thank you,
0: guys. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC.
2: We are back on the Orange and Brown Talk podcast. And so here we go. It's uh, me. It's Doug. It's Ashley. We have just listened to the experts who cover each of the, the three teams and the three coaches that we're discussing here And I just real generally am curious, anything you want from any of those interviews, what stood out to you guys? Like, Doug, what stood out to you just kind of listening to those three interviews about these coaches?
5: I think it was probably Hoynesy, basically admitting that no matter how good Terry Francona is, the Guardians maybe just aren't built to do this and that. This is a conversation where we're taking people and organizations into account. And Terry Francona in this discussion has more of a resume than Kevin Stefanski and J.B. Bickerstaff combined times 10. But can the franchise do it? And so when you, when you think about Terry Francona, just we all know the realities of the guardians right now, and it doesn't mean it's impossible for the guardians, but Paul Hoynes is Guardians coverage. And if he's saying like, just going to be a tough slog, man, that affects how I view the Guardians in this discussion.
2: Ashley, what stood out
5: to you from what you heard?
0: Yeah, for me, kind of going off of what Doug said, it was Hoinesy picking the Cavs and then Chris Fedor picking the Guardians. And I think what's so interesting about, you know, when we compare them – to the Browns, like those postseasons are obviously very different. Right. Like, and I think both of those teams, like the guardians have some roster questions, right. And how they're built questions and the Cavs, I think the biggest takeaway from Fedor was, you know, given the landscape of the NBA, given how young they are, even with Donovan Mitchell, that they're probably still a few years away from being true contenders. Um, and then Mary Kay going with Stefanski, um, I just think the NFL postseason is so different in terms of there aren't seven game series that you have to be worried about. Um, so I do think it was kind of interesting to hear Quincy and Fedor pick each other's teams and, and not their own.
2: The postseason format is interesting. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, look, we could go a million ways in this discussion, but it is sort of like, you know, in the NBA, the best team usually wins, or one of the like two or three best teams usually wins in the NFL. It's really random. Or it can be. And then baseball, sometimes it's like who gets the hottest. So that, yeah. that's why this is so complicated when you kind of think about it really big picture here. Um, for me, I, I guess I don't want to say my big one yet because that comes down to the, the bigger discussion. But I did think it was interesting to hear Chris talk about J.B. Bickerstaff and the way he manages um, that locker room. It sort of sounded like the way Hoynesy and a lot of people talk about Terry Francona too, that he understands how to kind of get his team through that grind of just the day-to-day long season. You're around each other every day. Guys get on each other's nerves. You know, we see it a lot in the NBA, especially like guys just get sick of each other and want to get away from each other. Um, and that's really important. I do wonder though, does that always translate to being able to go win a seven game series? And I think we've, we've sometimes we've seen that a little bit here and there with, with Tito. And, you know, we haven't gotten to see JB really get tested like that yet. Um, so I, I thought that was interesting. So uh, before we really dig into this, Doug, we were actually kind of having this discussion yesterday about how much you factor in the team itself, right? Because this discussion is about the coaches. I'm kind of of the belief that we have to marry – the team with the coach to really be able to answer this question. But I almost get the sense that maybe you didn't agree with that when we were just kind of talking about it yesterday.
5: No, no, no. I, I do agree with that. Okay. I, I just am very clear I think the most interesting part of this is that we're talking about three people and not organizations because coaches don't last man. And, and all of these organizations. Well, not all of them. The Guardians are the Guardians, Tito's Tito. This is a, that is as stable a situation. And as Hoinsey said, like it's kind of Tito's thing to call. And that discussion is really more about, I think, Tito's age, Tito's health, and what that roster is able to do. The Browns and the Cavs, I think, are in very interesting situations where they have these talented cores where, and they're not, you know, the the. I guess the Cavs are still pretty young. The Browns are getting not young. But there seems like – it seems like they think they should be on the precipice of winning. doesn't mean they have the head coach that's going to get them over the top. And so when we have a person discussion about this, you do have to marry it. But I very much wonder if both – in both those situations for the Browns and Cavs, at the moment they sort of have two lesser experienced head coaches who are getting stuff ready and then these teams are going to be at winning time and here comes the veteran coach over the top to get them over the top and that makes it so like if i'm going to pick jb bickerstaff or kevin stefanski that is absolutely in my head which i think makes this an especially interesting discussion okay so let's have it i was thinking
2: like maybe we should eliminate one maybe we should just go through the process of getting Kev. this
5: down down to Kev. two what oh sorry <laughs> well okay so i'm going to say Whoops. <laughs> sorry. I didn't mean to say that again. It's Kevin. <laughs> I'm why, sorry. I keep
2: it. Doug just comes out. This is why I might agree with you on this one, Doug. When I was listening to Mary Kay talk about Kevin Stefanski, and I actually, we recorded our, our daily podcast right after uh, we recorded that interview. And I said on that podcast, Ashley, you probably remember this I'm not going to make the Baker Mayfield comparison. Yeah. <laughs> I am going to do it here. When I was listening...
0: Dan's been sleeping on this for, like, the last 12 hours. He went to bed, (laughs) the thoughts formulated overnight, he woke up this morning and was like, I'm ready to do this, let's go. When I
2: listened to Mary Kay talk about Kevin Stefanski, and I don't think this was her intention, but this was my takeaway. Man, it really felt like Kevin Stefanski was doing a lot of, like, I'm gonna hire this guy, and this guy, and this guy, because they can do stuff that I can't do. And it just the more and more this goes on, it just, there's so many similarities to the whole Baker Mayfield saga, how it was, this guy's the best quarterback they've had since 99. He should have won rookie of the year, but he wasn't good enough. And the arguments for Kevin right now are, well, he was coach of the year in 2020 and they made the playoffs and he's probably the best coach they've had since they came back. But we kind of have to sit here and do a whole bunch of things to hold this guy up and prop him up and, and fill in some of the blanks. And I I came away from that, even though Mary Kay picked Kevin. And I'm, I don't know, maybe other people listened to that interview and, and thought the same thing as she did. I came away from that feeling a little worse. Like if I was thinking about picking Kevin for the answer to this discussion, I felt worse about doing that. And I wasn't going to do that anyway, but I, it didn't convince me. So, Doug, I think I might be in the same, same boat as you on this one. So Ashley, is there like, are, are do you disagree? Is, is Kevin the obvious one to eliminate here? W- where do we go with this?
0: I was going to also go with Kevin. Um, just oh because I can't, I know <laughs> I can't, I like, as we heard all of these interviews and, and, I mean, in my own thinking of, like, covering the Cavs, right, and filling in for Wednesday sometimes on the Guardians and just, like, paying attention to what that team is doing, for me, like, I need them to prove it at this point because, like, the Guardians and the Cavs, to me, have essentially proved in some ways with these coaches where these rosters are now that they they just feel further along than the Browns do to me. And I think, like, the one thing Kevin would have going for him if you were to make an argument for not eliminating him is kind of what we talked about with the postseason formats for these different sports, that the NFL can be a bit more random. Some years it's not that random, right? But some years it's pretty random. But I think right now, from everything we know, until we see if this team has made tangible improvements, um, I think it's really hard to say, yeah, they're for sure going to be able to beat the Chiefs or, or beat the Bills, like these top teams, the Bengals, these top teams in a postseason um, we just haven't seen that, so I think for me he was kind of like the obvious of the three here, unfortunately. <laughs> well, and the pr- the problem, Doug, is like the
2: Browns are all in, right? Yeah. Like two of these teams have gone all in; they've made their all-in move. The Browns to go get Deshaun Watson, and the Cavs giving up all that draft capital, choosing Donovan Mitchell as the guy that they were going to target. Like they're, uh, you know, if. if there's basketball fans out there that want to argue about well is Donovan Mitchell a top, you know, a superstar championship winning player or just a really good player. Like whatever, it doesn't matter. Cavs went all in. That was their all in move. So like you you got to have the guy. And I don't know if
5: Kevin is that guy right now. I know he's not. He's not the guy. <laughs> he's not the guy. If they ever win, it'll be with someone I else. I didn't think we'd have singing. It's not him. It's not a personal attack. It's not him. It's not him. And if people want to delude themselves into thinking that it's him, it's not him. He's Eric Wedge. I don't know. It's like you. Do we want to go back in the history of Cleveland sports and be like, well, I don't know. He's This guy seems okay, but he's not a get you over the – they are all in with a guy who barely was a coordinator before they hired him. I'm just going to give you some scenarios. And honestly, if you had to say, name a person currently in the city of Cleveland who's going to be the leader of the next championship team, I think I'd pick Jim Schwartz instead of Kevin Stefanski. Like, oh, well, and this thing goes south, and this guy's in the building, and he's kind of a hard edge. guy. Tennessee, there's a power struggle in Tennessee, right? I guess there was. The Tennessee got the Titans got rid of their GM, Mike Rables, in charge. But they're kind of searching for a quarterback. I don't know what the ownership situation is in there. Say it gets a little sideways this year in Tennessee. Let's say this Lamar Jackson thing implodes and the ownership in Baltimore is like, ah, man, it's been a great run, but I don't know. Let's say like this restless syndrome in with the Rams that ki- is constantly happening with Sean McVay. What's this? I don't know what this. I would pick Mike Vrabel. I would pick John Harbaugh. I would pick Sean McVay as more likely head coaches of the Super Bowl champion Browns than Kevin Stefanski. Because things like that happen. You get to a point as a franchise and you're like, we're right there. And then established winning dudes are like, you know what? They're right there. My situation got a little sideways. Yeah, I think I can make myself available for that. I just don't think he's it. And everything you said, every discussion that they have, it's like, well, they hired somebody to do this thing that he can't do. And then I say, well, how about you hire a guy in that head position who actually can do those things? Kevin Stefanski is an offensive coordinator. He could be the offensive coordinator for the new head coach they bring in. That's fine. I don't know. I, he's not the guy. I, I I mean, I got here quick. I got here quicker, I think, than anybody else here. But I'm still there. Now, okay, so obviously,
2: look, Kevin's going to be the guy we eliminate. We, we could establish that. But I will say, at the, at the very root of this question, which is, which of these coaches could win a championship first or will win a championship first? I think the irony of this, and this goes to Ashley's point of the postseason, the irony of this is, even though Kevin might not be the right answer, it could just end up being Kevin because the right guys get hurt. Deshaun Watson shows up and plays like 2020 Deshaun Watson and is some you know mishmash of that and what he was in Clemson when he was beating Alabama. Um, and, you know, I don't know, Patrick Mahomes gets hurt. Or, so, you know, something crazy happens in the NFL. You go into these single elimination games, the ball bounces your way. Um, and you end up in the Super Bowl and, and win it. The best coach and best team don't always win in the NFL, and so that's that's the one wrinkle here. That I was, so so Kevin might not be the right answer, but that doesn't mean it won't be Kevin. Does that make sense? Like like I don't know. No. I could make an <laughs> argument. I can make the argument that Terry Francona is the answer, and maybe that's the argument we'll ultimately make, but. I don't know, I don't know that I believe the Guardians will have the talent to beat the best of the best teams in baseball. I don't know if the Cavs will ever I don't know if they'll be able to get by a Giannis or a Jason Tatum and a Jalen Brown in a seven game series or um, you know, Kevin Durant in the finals or Jokic in the final you know what I mean? It's harder. Those formats are harder. In the NFL, you can just sort of Every
5: now and again, there's a team that just gets all the breaks. I think that a discussion about which Cleveland franchise is the most blocked is also interesting about this. And so, like, when you're naming off Jokic and Giannis and Kevin Durant and all the people that might make it hard for the Cavs, point taken about the structure, but Ashley, it's like what, what Mary Kay brought up. Okay, but Patrick Mahomes, Josh Allen, Joe Burrow, potentially Justin Herbert. Like, this is, I don't, Trevor Lawrence, right, that I also think when you think about the competition around the Browns and who they would have to go through, even in a single elimination format, I think the Browns might have the tougher competitive road than anybody, which I think factors in here too.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that's like, what's interesting about this discussion for me and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we all would say that if you're just looking at coaching, we think, Terry Francona is the best coach of these three and has the strongest resume. But like what you're saying, Dan, the question becomes like, okay, that's one discussion. But when you're talking about winning a championship, that's separate. So I do think it's interesting because I truly think all of these teams have kind of significant roadblocks in their way, given the landscapes of the league currently. I've gone back and forth over who I'm going to pick. Honestly, I still don't know. I'll probably change my mind two more times while we're talking. But I think that's what makes it kind of like an interesting discussion because then it's more about, okay, well, who do you think can best like manage some of those roadblocks?
2: And we should mention too, that not only is Terry Francona the answer for who is the best of these three, but also he is the one who's come the closest for all the, you know, for all we talk about, how difficult it is because of the structure and, and, you know, ownership, he was a rain delay away from winning a world series in 2016. So um, I'm sure there's somebody out there listening to this saying, what are you talking about? The the Indians were
5: that close back then. So he's also come the closest of of all these guys. But, but then that's, that's the entire guardians discussion, right? Which is, do we think they're in a position now to do what they did? that year and go all in and, and make the moves to give them a chance to do that. I, I, he's the same guy. Are they the same organization in terms of their, their willingness to take that extra step and having the resources, both from a talent perspective and monetary perspective to do it.
2: Okay. So we're, we're we're done with the Kevin discussion, right? Kevin's gone. We've eliminated him. We're down to these two
5: (laughs) JB Bickerstaff. Go ahead. just like to jump in by the way as much as i agree with ashley that you can see the roadblocks for all three of these franchises for none of these franchises is this a ridiculous discussion so i don't know how many cities there are in america where you could have a discussion like that and it wouldn't be like well it's not those guys there's not a well it's not those guys in cleveland and that in itself is a fairly remarkable thing So these are all legitimate contenders for this discussion because it's possible for all three. So after I sang a song about how bad (laughs) I think Kevin Stefanski is, I just wanted to say something positive.
2: Yeah, and I'm I'm glad you said that because I think the reason this is a fun discussion is because you can kind of close your eyes. And I mentioned the all-in moves that two two of them have made. Any three of these teams could play for a championship over the next, what, 500 days that that's you know next one season for the browns that's two nba final cycles for the for the calves you know the guardians we'll, we'll see what happens this year so i think that's why this is it's really hard to win a championship but these teams are kind of positioned talent wise to maybe do it so i mean Jay- imagine this
5: discussion imagine this discussion in houston The Astros are awesome, and it's like the Texans and the Rockets, and it's like, okay, podcast over, right? (laughs) There's just places where, like, you couldn't do this. You can do it in Cleveland. So,
2: Ashley, you've spent a lot of time covering the Cavs, and as Doug likes to say, your five jobs that you do. You've spent a lot of time covering the Cavs, so we're kind of down to JB and Tito. What is your kind of thought on JB and and his – sort of what he's good at, and maybe why he'd be the
0: answer to this. I mean, I kind of agree with Chris. Like, seeing him and I will say, like, going from Kevin Stefanski press conferences to J.B. Bickerstaff press conferences, it's like two totally different worlds, right? Like, he just, to me, feels like peak gets it in terms of the players, in terms of the grind of the league. Like last game I went to for them um, in my, I think it was in my game story, I included this great quote for him where, you know, kind of like a nothing game that they end up winning. They're playing the Pistons, I think it was. And he's like, Hey, look, like, I know everyone likes to kind of make jokes about, Oh, these guys get paid millions of dollars to do this. It's so hard being a professional NBA player, but he kind of laid out almost like poetically how hard it actually is to do this for, you know, 82 regular season games and then a possible postseason. So I really think that's his strengths in terms of, you know, and the way he's able to motivate, like with their junkyard dog chain, which Chris wrote a great story on last year. Um, And I think it's even harder to do that when you have a bunch of young guys who have never been there before, which was essentially the situation they were in last year when they made it to the play-in tournament. So I do agree with Chris that that is probably like his biggest strength sometimes for me, the issue is still the lineups and how much he yells at the refs. Like, I do wonder, okay, like that fiery personality is great, but is that going to cost you some games potentially? Um, And I know my criticism of JB's lineups have always been, he really is in love with these eight or nine man rotations, which I think is great in the postseason, And you kind of need that, but in the regular season, I'm kind of like, I don't know if it's the second night of a back-to-back. Like, can't you put Kevin Love in there for, like, five or ten minutes at that point? Um, so I think those are my biggest criticisms and questions is, like, the lineups and some of the counter-adjustments. But I do think in terms of his demeanor, his personality, the way he can motivate a locker room, I think all of that stuff is there, and I do think that's that's important. Like, we kind of saw Ty Lu have all of that when he was here, right? So... Um, I definitely think that shouldn't be overcounted, but those are the think some of the roadblocks to that, that in questions I have about him. Old two beats bastock, just breaking it down. <laughs> You're a
5: Brownsrider. <laughs> How
0: do you know this much about basketball? I know you I played know you it. Know,
5: Doug. Uh, two beats Bastock. Oh. <laughs>
0: everything just sticks in my brain, Doug. I remember everything.
5: <laughs> it's,
2: it's true. Doug is, I'm a little worried. Is the answer to this question going to be none
5: of these guys? Oh, well, I mean, that's where I was when I started. As soon as this topic came up, I was like, <laughs> none of the above. Let's move on. Um, so, like, this discussion, again, I I certainly know less about the Cavs than the other two teams, and I know far less about the Cavs than Fedor and what Ashley just laid out. But to me, again, it's, it's a similar discussion, although I have more belief in J.B. Bickerstaff than I do Kevin Stefanski. Would they get to a point where JB's the guy before the guy? And all of a sudden – I don't know. The Suns just got Kevin Durant and they think this is it, but there's a personality conflict and all of a sudden Monty Williams is available. Not that Monty Williams has a bunch of rings, but he's a veteran coach and JB is a veteran coach too. Or, you know, Nick Nurse, everybody loves Nick Nurse in Toronto and they just do a rebuild there and they tear it down. And it's like, Nick Nurse is like, this isn't for me. And suddenly Nick Nurse is available. I don't know, but could that happen? I certainly could see that. Right, that that JB's putting in a lot of work to set this up, but they wind up going with somebody who's been there a little bit more to get them over the top. But I'm not as certain of that as I feel like I am with the Browns. So, um, and and I do think there's something of you know this group kind of growing together. The lineup stuff matters, and it's the stuff you know. You talk about with every coach. There's the relationship stuff, and then there's like the X's and O's stuff. And if he's got the relationship stuff figured out, then that might be enough, man. If these guys believe in him, then maybe that's enough. And then maybe like JB's the answer here, no doubt about it.
2: Man, Ashley brought up Ty Lue, and I just wonder, like, if if we were talking about Ty Lue. Who has you know, his reputation has really grown, obviously, since he's left the Cavs, but he's won a title here. He's he's the one guy that's won a title in Cleveland. I, I wonder what the discussion would be like if the if the Cavs had stuck with Ty Lu and he were still the guy. I almost wonder if that yeah. would feel like the no-brainer here, because so, of how good of a coach he really is.
0: I know. I was gonna say it's funny because when Ty was here and we kind of talked about this yesterday, I think Dan that His reputation has grown in terms of the X's and O's. Like, he was always that guy. I think that people thought of like, oh, he's the Doc Rivers protege. He knows how to motivate people. Of course, the famous story of taking money from everybody on the team and leaving it in the ceiling of the locker room in Golden State during the finals saying we got to you know, come back here to get this money, essentially, like all those things he did. But the perception when he was here was always like, oh, well, he has LeBron. So like you don't really need to be that kind of tactician. And I think now in L.A., he's kind of grown that reputation a little bit more. So I do kind of think he would probably be the obvious answer here. And again, I think even if you put Ty Lu in this group and and took out J.B. Bickerstaff, I think for me, Terry Francona, I think, would still be the best coach. But it just becomes now, OK, where are these teams at in terms of, you know, the actual postseason run?
2: OK, so I guess we got to we got to make picks here. We, we got to. We got to plant our flags. And I'll say this, even though Kevin has been eliminated, this is like, so in the off season, early off season of the NFL, I watch a lot of Shark Tank because it's on like CNBC late at night and I love Shark Tank. So I'll like flip through, oh my God, it's like the one like actual TV show I'll watch that's not just streaming. Um, So the reason I bring that up is like, sometimes you're watching Shark Tank and like four people say they're out and somebody makes an offer and another, you know, one of the guys who was out is like, oh, I'm back in. I want to make my offer. That's my long way of saying, like, if you've been sitting here thinking, "Yeah, maybe I want to make a case for Kevin," you can bring. I'm not going to do that. Okay, sorry, sorry, Doug. That was that was directed at you. Yeah, I'm not. All right, I guess. Do we need a consensus here? That's let's each kind of make our choice Mm -hmm. and let's see if there's any sort of consensus here as to who's representing a city. Yeah, city. I think we need hundreds
5: of thousands of loyal diehard fans of these three organizations. Yes, we need a consensus. Okay. And
2: is none an option? Like, is that?
0: Yes. Okay.
2: All right. I just want to make sure. I will go first here. And I really, really want to pick Tito. But I just don't trust the Guardians. And one of my reasonings is, and I kind of mentioned this a little bit when we were talking to Hoinsey. Like, Jose Ramirez, right, is a Superstar you win world series with players like Jose Ramirez. He is an MVP candidate, but Jose Ramirez hurt his thumb like middle of the year last year when they were in LA and he was never quite the same player. And the, the bottom line is the guardians just don't have the depth, you know, so the Yankees could have a star player get hurt and play hurt. And they've got two or three guys behind that guy that can still keep that lineup moving. And the guardians just don't have that. Um, And so I think that's hard over the course of from February to November. Everybody's got to be healthy. Everybody's got to produce. And you just have no room for error. And they went all in in 2016, as all in as they're going to go, trading for Andrew Miller, giving up their top two prospects. And they came this close. And I don't know if that's going to happen again, because I think they're so invested in all of these prospects that they have. So I, I just can't pick Tito even though I think he's the best guy. And even though I think if he were someplace that spent even just a little bit more money, I think he'd probably win one or two more. I don't think I can pick him. I will go with JB. And maybe that's part of, because I, part of it is because look, like, I'm not around the Cavs as much as Chris, as much as Ashley. Um, I, I do follow a lot of NBA. It does. I don't know if the Cavs can go toe to toe in a seven game series with a Giannis or a Tatum or whoever else. But I do think bringing in Donovan Mitchell gives you that guy who on a given night can go toe to toe with those guys. So I'm going to, I'm going to pick somebody even though I'm a little worried JB could be the guy before the guy I'm going to pick him. I'm going to say it's JB Bickerstaff, not this year, but next year. So there's my pick. Ashley, who do you think?
0: I was also going to go with JB um, for very similar reasons in terms of for as great as the Guardians run was last year. And I think it's great that they have young guys. You know, I think a lot about uh, Terry Francona did an interview like towards the end of the season and somebody, you know, asked him, how are you able to get all these guys to buy in and, and have this much success? And he essentially said, like, they're young kids who don't know any better. So they're willing to listen and like, kind of move on and put things behind them. I do think there's some truth to that. But I think in my mind, I can't get 2016 out of my head either and how close they came. And for as good as I think Tito is, I don't know if they're going to, to get over the hump. I do think that hearing Chris say he thinks they're about two years away from being true contenders, I think that might ultimately push JB over the top. And I hear the argument about him being the guy before the guy potentially and and are we worried they would move on from him. I am not quite there yet for, for some of the concerns I have about JB that others have about JB that I think are valid. I think when we talked about this with Chris, Dan, when they hired him, they brought him in as essentially a long-term solution, right? Like they looked at John Beeline and they needed a very specific thing at that time that they thought John Beeline could provide for them. It ended up being a disaster. He didn't even last a season and they came right to JB. But I think for so long, JB was their answer and that doesn't mean that it's going to change or that it's not going to change, I should say. But I do think that they are closer than we think and The biggest thing for me that they need is not necessarily something that JB did. I thought Chris made great points about some of the counters he made during the playing games last year, um, even though those ended up being losses. But I do think the NBA is all about matchups and experience. And I think you need the right combination of those. But I think the Cavs are just in the strongest spot. And I think JB is the right guy for this team right now.
5: Doug, what's your pick? So I will say the the argument that the Guardians are the least blocked, which Hoinsie kind of made, and if you look at like the preseason projections right now, Pakoda and some other things, it's like it's probably a toss-up between the Guardians and Minnesota in the Central, and so they have a path to get in in a sport that we all kind of agree is the most random in the postseason. So get in and then let Shane Bieber and Tristan McKenzie and – your bullpen put it away and hope Jose Ramirez drives in at least one run every game and you can see it, right? Get back in, in a weak division and then rely on starting pitching and your bullpen. I think that's reasonable. I do. I think that is a reasonable argument that if the question is, will the guardians ever be the best team in baseball? No, could they win the World Series? Yeah, they could. Yeah, no, they could win the World Series as like the fifth best team in baseball that got hot, Dan, which you said at the very beginning of this. So that's a very reasonable argument. But I'm also going to pick JB Bickerstaff because I can't get there all the way with the Guardians. And it's possible a year from now, you know, you're saying, what do you do with Giannis? What do you do with the Celtics and Tatum? And Maybe Evan Mobley's going to be at a place and you're like, what do you mean? What are you going to do? You're going to have Evan Mobley lock those guys down and it's good to go. And Garland and Mitchell are going to go off and that's it. And then they added a wing and we're, they're good to go. What like, what's the question? Nobody is more prepared to deal with Boston and Milwaukee than the Cleveland Cavaliers. They're ascending, they're ascending and they're going to stay together. I think they're going to get more swings at it. The guardians could get there on a very specific path through the woods that involves Shane Bieber striking out 15 guys in four different playoff games, right? The Cavs over the next five years are just going to be in there competing at a high level and might punch through. So um, I don't think it's a slam dunk. And even though I definitely came into this exercise thinking none of the above was a, was probably the number one answer. I do think in the end, I do think the number one answer is JB Bickerstaff. And I do think Terry Francona still also beats out none of the above. So my my final order is Bickerstaff, Francona, none, Jim Schwartz, Andy Reid coming to Cleveland, Mike Vrabel on a homecoming tour, Nick Nurse, Freddie Kitchens coming wow, back. Nick Nurse. Hugh Jackson as the coach of the Cavs. Kev is my order. That is a power ranking.
2: I, I also want to throw in here that there was a part of me that just wanted to make Ashley angry and say it was gonna be Jim Harbaugh.
0: Okay. No. Just no. No. Absolutely not. That wouldn't even be funny, Dan. Yeah. And that wouldn't you wouldn't you couldn't even make an argument for that. Uh all right, you we're not know. gonna we're not gonna go there. Not yet. exactly. We'll save
2: that for the next time we do this podcast a year from now. I can't believe we ca- I can't believe we landed on a consensus. I am shocked that we. I did not expect to land on a consensus, and for JB Bickerstaff to be the guy we landed on. Uh, What's I, Fedor gonna think? Fedor didn't even think this, right? Well, I you know yeah. look, I think Fedor's the, high the on other the, guardians, man. the other consensus that we all have is. I think we all agree that Tito Francona is yeah. the best coach slash manager in this city. So um, it's kind of disappointing. I think that's one of the the points of this exercise, though. Is God, it makes you feel like really awful that you that he can't just have a team that is just a little bit more set up that just has ah, He's a fine. Few more he has resources. two rings. He's fine.
5: He's got a scooter and two rings. That guy's good to go. All
2: right. Uh, Well, that was fun. I appreciate everybody for sticking it out here as we tried to determine the next coach, the first of these three coaches that could win a championship here in Cleveland. So I appreciate Chris Fedor and Paul Hoynes for taking the time to do this. Mary Kay Cabot as well. Uh, make sure that you are subscribed to this podcast and whatever podcast feed you listen to this on, whether it's the Cavs or the guardians or orange or Brown talk, uh, just make sure you get subscribed on Apple podcasts and Spotify. And we've all got little insider packages, whether it's texting, whether it's the full package that we have for the Browns, uh, you can get all that information uh, on the various pages on our website. It's just cleveland.com slash calves slash guardians and slash Browns. So for everyone, once again, thanks for doing this. Uh, for Doug and Ashley, I'm Dan. Thanks for listening, everybody.